So sometimes I think that life would be easier if it was more like a movie. You know what I mean? Because as a pastor, I know what you would say if I stopped and said, who's your enemy? Because you're people, and people oftentimes what you do is you want to kind of protect yourself. So you would say, well, pastor, I'm a pretty nice person sometimes, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, and so I don't have any enemies, right? That's what you would say. I don't have any enemies. But if I said, picture your life like a movie, a major motion picture, there are characters in your movie. You're the main one, right? And you'd be like, yeah, okay, I'm tracking now. And I'd be like, there's a soundtrack, and that would be a fun conversation, but we're not going to go into that. And I would say you would have a plot. That's about the thing, like when you have things in your life that you're wanting to do, your goals in life, the things you're trying to achieve, everything you're trying to get to in life, that's kind of your plot line, right? And then if I said, who's your arch nemesis? Who's the person who's trying to stop you from getting to that thing that you're wanting to do? You would pause, but you would answer the truth in your brain. Men, some of you, you would never say it out loud, but some of you, you're thinking, my wife. And then you start thinking, if only my wife would do, I would never say this, but only if she would do what I tell her to do, then life would be good, right? If she would just, if she would just think everything I say is awesome, life would be so good. And ladies, you would never say this, but some of you are thinking, my husband. My husband. If my husband would only do what I'm thinking before I think it, like when we were dating, life would be like a big honeymoon. It would be so good. And some of you as parents, you're thinking about your kids. You're thinking, if my kids could only see the wisdom that I have. There are three. They should have this by now. You know, if they would only see the wisdom that I have and how the things I'm saying to them, it matters in life. And the kids are thinking, my parents. My parents, if they would just see the eternal value of Fortnite, we would be doing great, you know. And, and so we talk about all these ridiculous things. But the reality is we as individuals, isn't it true, we are constantly divided with people around us. We constantly see a relational division with the people around us. And it's not just as individuals that we face this. It's with groups and organizations, isn't it? Guys, our government shut down. The answer is yes. It's groups and organizations too. Because you have Republicans saying it's those liberal Democrats. It's their fault. And you have the Democrats saying, no, the evil Republicans. It's their fault. And you have the rich looking at the poor saying, you're just, you're killing the system. And you have, you have the poor saying, well, if I had money, I would, I would be like Robin Hood. You know, I'd take care of everyone who's poor. And then you have the, the gender equality issues and you have the race issues. You have boss employee union relationships. The reality is the world doesn't have to try to be in conflict. It defaults to conflict. And on that happy note, welcome to Woodside Romeo, everyone. <laughs> I'm Billy Creech. I'm your campus pastor here, and we are in a very short series that I am just so excited about. It's a series on the book of Philemon. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Philemon in your New Testament now. Philemon is one of those books that uh, a lot of people just kind of miss it. You know, because when you read Paul, you're like, oh, I'm going to read in Romans, or I'm going to read in Galatians, or First and Second Corinthians, and then you get to Philemon, and you're kind of like, oh... Oh, like I, I forgot that was even in there because it's only 25 verses. But those 25 verses have made a huge impact on church history. It's a, it's a giant in showcasing relationships, and it's really focused 
on this one theme that we have in this sermon series, and it's the theme of reconciliation. The one thing that I really want to draw out and help you remember today is this. This is our big idea today. Relational barriers come down in Christ. Relational barriers come down in Christ. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, how does that happen? Yeah, it's clear we all have relational barriers with people around us. But how do they come down in Christ? Well, there's going to be three ways. First, you have to seek reconciliation. Seek reconciliation. Look at verse 17. Paul is writing, and he says, So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If you missed last week, let me catch you up with what's going on. Paul is writing a letter to his friend Philemon. And so he's not writing from a posture of, I'm in charge, I'm the authority. He's not writing like, hey, I'm going to boss you and you have to listen to it. It's, it's more like we're, we're fr- and not really just friends. That's not strong enough. It's, it's really a brotherhood. There's this union. There's this, there's this Christian fellowship taking place. And so Paul writes to Philemon about this third party, Onesimus. Onesimus is a former slave to Philemon. And really, as he's talking to him, he's talking to him based on this foundation of the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, if you're not familiar with the doctrine of reconciliation, you'll want to write this down. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 18. We're going to put it up on the screen, but I want you to write that down so you can study it later this week. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 18. Paul writes this in Ephesians. He says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So Paul is discussing the hostile relationship that exists between Jews and Gentiles, between Jews and those who are not Jews. Now, there's a group from Woodside that recently went to the Holy Land. They went to Israel. And when they went to Israel, they experienced all kinds of things. In fact, you'll want to write down this on your calendar, February 3rd, 10th, and 17th. At the 830 service, yes, I know where I am. At the 830, you can do it. At the 830 service on those three weeks, there's going to be a Thrive class offered. That's a Bible study class. To sign up, again, the next steps desk, out the door to the right. Sign up for that class. Space is limited, so you'll want to get signed up for that. It will change the way forever that you read the Bible. Like the next sermon series, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. They have photos from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus started his public ministry. In fact, Pastor Steve is standing there teaching at the site, and they will be able to show you these photos and talk you through all of the events of what happened. But that group will also tell you how today, 
thousands of years later, there's still a hostile environment that exists between Jews and those who are not Jews. That environment is still there. And it's almost like they're taking these metaphorical bricks and, and throwing them at each other. And as each group is throwing the bricks, it's like the walls of division become higher and higher. You can picture that, right? You may have relationships where that happens. Those walls go higher and higher. And so as Paul teaches here, he's shown how they turn their hostility toward Christ. They nailed him to the cross, and then that's where Jesus broke down the walls that divided them. Have you ever been so mad, so angry, that you're like, I have to do something with this anger? Nope, just me. Cool. (laughs) You guys... Know how to make a guy feel good. Um, all right, so thank you. All right, so there's two of us in here that we've been so angry that it's like, man, I gotta, I've got to place this anger somewhere. And what this says is you have the Romans during the day and you have the Jews. They represented Jews and Gentiles. They, they were so angry together that they cast all that anger on Jesus and the cross. It was at the cross that Jesus did the, what no one else could do. And he leveled that anger into a place of peace. This, this is the doctrine of reconciliation, that Jesus came not just to reconcile man to man, but he came to reconcile man to God. Do you see that? I mean, this is powerful teaching right here from Paul. That's his doctrine of reconciliation. So based on that, knowing that, look back now at Philemon 17. It says, so if you consider me your partner Receive him as you would receive me. Because of the cross, you and I, Philemon, we can't remain hostile with each other. We we can't. The cross has leveled all of that for you and me. So we can't be hostile. And what I want you to do is I want you to receive him just like you would receive me. Look down back at verse 15. Look at this. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant. Yours might say, your version might say a slave. Go ahead and circle that in your Bible right there. Bondservant or slave. But more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Go ahead and circle that as well. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul's saying, because we are in the Lord, that that wall that exists has to be torn down because of the Lord. But this is where it gets sticky. Because the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus is different, right? Not only do they have the, hey, we're just both guys hanging out. They've got that going on. Not only are they both Christians, but there's also legal implications here, right? There's a legality issue because you have master and you have slave, right? Okay, so it's like if if I have a husband and wife come talk to me. They're talking to me, and you have the, like, sitting in a tree. So you got that part of their relationship going on. And then you have, okay, if we're all Christians, you've got that part of the relationship going on. But then you have a third part, and that is the legal implications of our conversations, right? There are also legal issues going on. And Paul here is not talking about the master-slave relationship. You do see that, right? That's not what he's addressing at all, which then brings up the question, Why? Why doesn't, I remember asking this question, I was so mad whenever I thought of this question. I was like, why doesn't the New Testament talk more about the evil of slavery? 
Like, why does it just kind of brush over it like it is a thing and keep going? Why doesn't it come out and condemn it in, in stronger terms? And maybe you've wondered that before and just never got it answered. I got it answered. I went in and started thinking about it and digging and researching. And I'm like, oh, that's why. And so I want to share it with you because I think it, it, it's important for what we're talking about. You have to be so, so careful to not take your 21st century reality and bias and shove it onto history. Does that make sense? Like this morning, the alarm goes off at 4.50. The poodle has to go for a walk. He's a big poodle. He's not what you think. I mean, he's ginormous. He's a great big poodle. And um, he's got to go for a walk, right? So if he's going to be in his crate all day. I've got to walk him. And so I go, and I walk over. And what do you think I did? With I, I flipped the lights on, right? That's what you do so you don't run your toe into anything. You flip the light. I didn't even think about it. Flip the lights right on. I walked over to the thermostat. Rubbed my eyes. I looked at the thermostat. How cold is it in this house, right? And is it that cold outside? I wonder how cold it is. And then I found out, no, it's really cold outside at 4.50 in the morning on a Sunday morning, right? And so I take the dog. I didn't even think about it. My reality is I flip the switch and the power comes on. I, I don't think. My reality is I push buttons and my house gets warm. I don't have to go chop all the firewood. I don't, I don't have to do that. I just press the button and it just magically will get warm. That's what happens. I can't take that reality and shove it on the American Revolution. It doesn't work. I can't take that reality, the reality of where we live, and put it onto the first century. It doesn't work. It's just like we don't think about electricity in the first century. Slavery just is how it was. So in the city of Colossae, like the book of Colossians, in the city of Colossae, up to one-third of the population was made up of slaves. And it wasn't because of skin color. It was because a lot of times, sometimes it was not voluntary, sometimes it was voluntary, but they held all kinds of jobs, mine workers, gladiators, actors, musicians, business managers, children's tutors, nannies, nurses, barbers, teachers, physicians, you get the point. Some were treated horribly. Some were treated with a great deal of honor and respect. The struggle for us is when we hear slavery, we think of the absolute grossness that happened in our history. Right? We think, of going, we think about going to Africa and getting people because of the color of their skin, putting them on a ship in chains, bringing them to that. that that's what we think. We think of the embarrassment and the grossness of what happened in our history. That's what we think. And yet, that's not what they would have thought. In fact, Clement is an early church writer for church history. In the first century, he wrote that there were Christians who would, on purpose, sell themselves into slavery, not because they had need, but because they saw that there were other brothers and sisters in Christ who had need. Therefore, they would sell themselves into slavery to provide for the needs of other Christians. Isn't that incredible? And now what you could do is after seven years, you could buy your freedom if you wanted to. You could buy your freedom back or you could say, no, this is a master that I can trust. It's a, it's a person who's uh, providing provision and protection. They're doing good. And so Paul's challenge to Philemon is that you need to legally set him free. In fact, if he would have, if he would have said, that's the goal, and Philemon sets him free, and then says, Onesimus, you're free, but don't you ever talk to me again. We're done, you and me. Paul would not have seen that as a win, would he have? Because the win was reconciliation. The win was for them to be unified again. You see where this is going, don't you? 
What about you? How are you doing? Where are those areas of tension? And the reality is probably you struggle with people who have the most access to your heart. Boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, mom, dad, son, daughter, right? That's where we struggle the most. Employee, employer. You know normally how we react? What we do is we fight or flight, don't we? We fight or flight. And when you put it in Christian terms, here's what flight looks like. Flight looks like, well, me and that person, we're done. But I'm going to take the high road, and we tell everyone about it. I'm going to take the high road. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. I'm just not going to fight them because I don't think it's worth it. I'm going to, I'm going to honor Jesus with how I live. I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. Right? And that, I mean, that's kind of what we do sometimes, right? And you may not be so dramatic about it, but you might be that dramatic about it, right? That's flight. That's what flight looks like. I'm not going to do what's right in reconciling the relationship. I'm just running from anything that makes me uncomfortable. Fight looks very different. That's where you puff up like a bullfrog, and you walk in, and you say, there's going to be two hits. I'm going to hit you. You're going to hit the floor. You know, and <laughs> just going to, and you get all tough, right? And you're like, Mm, and you're going to fight them, and that's not reconciliation, right? Paul is challenging Philemon in this place to use the spiritual resources that we have, which is the power of Jesus working in us to bring a restoration, a reconciliation in this relationship, which brings us to point number two. How do we overcome those barriers, those walls that are there? Number two, we draw on the power of our fellowship in Christ, so Paul's talking to Philemon and is uh, talking about uh, seeking out the reconciliation. Look, verse 4. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 6. I think verse 6 is one of the most confusing, misunderstood verses in this whole letter. The sharing of your faith. If you're brand new to the Bible, you may understand that quicker than people who have been reading the Bible for a long time. Because people who have been reading the Bible for a long time, you look, I pray the sharing of your faith. If I asked you, hey, did you share your faith this week? You automatically default to evangelism, don't you? Sharing my faith. That means telling other people about Jesus. That is not what Paul's talking about right here. We know because this sharing of your faith is translated from the Greek word quanania. We talked about that word last week. Quanania is fellowship. Quanania is, is intimate relationship. It's where I open my life and I say I'm giving you invitation and permission to be invested in my life and I'm going to get right in the middle of yours. We're going to get in this space of each other's Life is where we say, when, when you hurt, I hurt. When, when you celebrate, I celebrate. Like we are sharing, does that make more sense? Like we are sharing this. We're doing this life thing together. So quite literally, Paul says, if we're really in this partnership of faith together, Philemon, if we're really doing this brotherhood thing together, then you've got to let him replace me. You've got to let Onesimus come in and, and be where I am. You have to do that. It would be like, imagine, big imagination here, but imagine it was hot outside. Hot. You walk outside and you're sweating. It's so hot. 
and Philemon was hanging out with you, and you're like, let's go get in the pool, you know, and he's on the unicorn, right? So he's got that big, puffy unicorn, and you're on the eggs, you know, the eggs are floating on the water, you know what I'm talking about, right? The little floaty thing in the pool. So you're on the eggs, he's on the unicorn, and Onesimus is sitting out in the field. He's just sitting there, and he's watching you, and he's, he's getting red and beat down by the sun, and he's just drenched in sweat. And you're sitting there splashing the pool. You would look at Philemon and you say, Philemon, this can't be. This, this can't be how we go about it. You, you've got to invite that guy in. We don't have a choice. You've got to invite him in. You see, with Christian fellowship, we have to do the work of the Lord for this to be effective. And I'm just going to say, I think, I think this is a struggle. I think this is a huge struggle for us. Because here's what it means. It means that you invite people into that messy space. Does that make sense? I, I've seen people leave churches over this. A lot of times leave churches over this. Because someone starts to speak into your life and say, hey, here's what you're doing, but it's not really Christ-likeness, and so we need to change. And instead of having hard conversations, it's so easy to just say, you know what, I'm out. I'm going to go over here to this other church. I'm going to bounce. We'll see you later. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to stay there and put up with that. But that's not the life we're called to. You and I are called to this place, this different. You see, if you go have Starbucks with someone, if you go to the coffee shop with someone, you go drink coffee together and you talk about work stuff and family stuff and that's all good and that's all great. Or you go golf. I used this example with the staff earlier in the week. You know, when you go golf with someone, you're going to be looked at as weird if all of a sudden you look at them and you go, you sure are drinking a lot of those beers. You're just, you're just pounding them left and right. You, you got a problem? You know, it seems like you've got a little bit of an it. You sure are saying a lot of potty mouth words. Like you're cussing up a storm. You need a bar of soap to wash that mouth out. You know, you need that because you probably ought to straighten it. They're going to look at you like, who are you? Right? What are you doing? But as brothers and sisters in Christ, what Paul's saying is, no, that's exactly where we are supposed to be. Now, my question to you is, who do you allow to be in that space in your life? You don't let 900 people into that space, but who do you let into that space? Who do you let look at your life and say, hey, here's the ways of the Lord, and, and I, I love you because I love you. I want to get in that messy area to tell you, like, there's some areas where you're falling short. And, and who do you do that for? Who do you study the word with so that you can look at them and do the same thing and say, I love you. And I'm not talking about they're judging me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that place, like what Paul's doing with Philemon. Philemon, you're missing the mark. You're trying to do this flight thing and run from it and have Onesimus not. And Onesimus is too. Like Onesimus is out. He ran. He's a runaway slave. Like, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to deal with it. We don't even know what happened. But we know it's enough that both of them did this flight thing. And now think of the challenge. Paul wrote this letter. He's in chains, church. He's in prison. He wrote this letter. And what did he do with the letter? He gave it to Onesimus and said, now you have to go deliver this to Philemon for me. That would have been awkward. All right. Last, how do we overcome organizational and individual divisions? This is it. We champion, we champion the cause of the voiceless. We champion the cause of the voiceless. Today is Sanctity of Life Day. Today is a day that we speak on behalf of those who have no voice. We speak on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. Tomorrow, tomorrow is MLK Day. Dr. King's life 
is really about so much more, though, um, than just him. Like, that's what the celebration is about. It's not really about Dr. King, is it? It's about this movement to say, we're going to give a voice to a whole population segment that for generations has been silenced. And can I just say, I don't think we've arrived yet. I really don't. I don't think we, and here's why I say that. Harvard University said, we've got some work to do in this area. So here's what Harvard said. Harvard said, you know, we want everyone to believe that you can be anything that you want to be. You want to be president of the United States? You can. You want to do that? You can. And so what they said is, we're going to offer free tuition, free, Harvard for free. If you come from a minority, from a low socioeconomic background, you can go for free out of the next year, out of 1,600 students. Do you know how many came with that free tuition? 15. Now, I, I celebrate and I love that it's a step, but church, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a mighty small step. Nationwide, 15. And, and sometimes what we do, because we forget what it's like to struggle a little bit, we, we start to think things like, well, the helping hand you're looking for is at the end of your arm. And I'm just going to tell you, that's not always true. I was a school teacher before I was a pastor. Um, most of you guys know that. And I was thinking back, and I was like, okay, I was 23. That's weird to say, but I was 23 years old. I still had hair back then. 23 years old, teaching fourth grade. I was running a drama ministry at the church and teaching school. And one day, this young man comes, a brand new student. His name was Kiwan. And Kiwan came, and he was the biggest fourth grader I'd ever seen. Like, he was taller than me in fourth grade. Like, he was a man-child. And so Kiwan came in, and he sat down at the desk, and it didn't take long. This, this guy fell asleep in my classroom. Guys, I don't have people fall asleep when I preach. I didn't have people fall asleep when I taught either. Like, I taught the same way that I, I preach. And so this guy's, like, snoring. He falls asleep. He's snoring in my classroom. So I, I wake him up, and I take him in the hall. I did exactly what you would expect me to do. I take him in the hall, and most kids, I get down on a knee. I just look him straight in the eye, right? No getting down on the knee for Kiwan. So I look at him. I'm like, Kiwan, why are you falling asleep in my classroom? Like, how is that possible? And he looks at me and says, well, Mr. Creech, your, your room feels safe to me. And um, I, I stay at the shelter. Shelter is a fancy word for orphanage. We don't like the word orphanage anymore in the United States. So we say words like shelter because it sounds better to us, right? He said, I stay at the shelter, and then he tells me a story about how he's never met his dad, and he had to see his mom get taken away in handcuffs. This kid's in fourth grade. And uh, Kiwan says, Mr. Creech, I'm, I'm so big, they won't let me stay where the rest of the kids stay who are my age. So they make me stay where the high schoolers stay, and I'm afraid those boys are going to rape me at night. Helping hand you're looking for. Yeah, sometimes maybe that's true. But I'm looking at this kid, and what I realized is he needed an advocate. He needed an advocate. And so I didn't know what else to do. I mean, I'm 23 years old trying to figure this thing out. So I just looked at him, and I said, all right, young man, here's the deal. You can sleep until noon. You can sleep until noon, but then you're mine, and you're going to read, and you're going to read on level because you're going to break through this, and you got to keep going, and you're not going to if you sleep all day. So you have until noon, and, and then you're mine. What Paul is saying here, this point is 
the voiceless need an advocate. Look what he says. Look what Paul says to Philemon about the slave Onesimus. And so I'm clear, this slave has no voice, church. He's a slave. He has no voice. He is nothing in society. And so here's what Paul says. Paul says, I appeal to you, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Are you hearing this language? He is saying, I'm going to advocate. I'm going to be an advocate for you, Onesimus. I'm going to appeal. I'm going to appeal for you. And did you hear what he said to Philemon? I'm sending my very heart. He's like a kid to me. He's like my own child. You know, he didn't send platitudes. He didn't look at Onesimus and say, well, little buddy, I hope you find some food and hope you stay warm. And uh, I'll pray for you. Good luck. Yeah, he didn't say that, did he? You know what he said? He said, Philemon, I will pay. If there's a debt he owes, I will pay it. Paul realizes that he has a platform. He has position. He has this space in life, this privilege that Onesimus doesn't have. And he says, I'm going to use that privilege. Even from prison, he had more privilege than Onesimus had. And he said, it's in that spot that I'm going to speak for you because you have no voice. And my question to you is, who are you speaking up for? Because you see, as Christians, we have a calling and a responsibility. It is our job to care for the orphans. It is our job to care for the widows. It is our job to be this voice in this world. And if you're going, well, pastor, I don't even know where to start. I'm not doing that, and I don't know where to start. I want to give you just a real quick commercial to give you an idea of the types of things you can do. Uh, Samaritan's House. If you don't know about Samaritan's House, they're a nonprofit right here in our community, and there's so, so much they do. I'm going to talk about one aspect. I just want to talk about food. You see, every month, they spend between $6,000 and $8,000 on food. Last year, they spent $92,000 to feed 4,775 people, 200 of which were homebound. Now, some of you, you're like, okay, that was a lot of numbers right there. That was math, you know, and I, you, you lost me. So let me go slow and say that again. 200 people who are homebound received food last year. Right now, today, it's cold outside. The roads aren't necessarily the best. There are some people who can't and shouldn't get out on the roads. It wouldn't be safe for them. It wouldn't be safe for us either. And so they're locked inside their home right now. No food. This organization last year took food to 200 individuals. Last year, they spent $92,000 to feed almost 5,000 people. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, I didn't know that that was even a thing in this community. Guys, think about it. I'm not talking about some other area of Michigan. I'm not talking about Appalachia. I'm not talking about some other area around. I'm talking here, our backyard, our home. Our home, right here. Your neighbors, people sitting right beside you right now, thinking to themselves, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family next week. I have no idea how I'm going to feed the kids. I don't know what I'm going to do. 
this organization fed almost 5,000 people. And so the goal was to tell you about a fundraiser that they have. And this is important because it's not the job of Lansing. It's not the job of Republicans. It's not the job of Democrats to feed people in our community church. That is our job. That is the job that we have. And if there are hungry people in our community, that is on us. There should not be one single hungry person in our whole community, not while we're on watch. It should not happen. That, that's our job. It's the job the Lord gave us to do. And so this fundraiser, the, the goal was to have this pasta dinner. And we were supposed to talk about tickets that we could sell for the pasta. They're sold out of tickets. You can't go to the pasta dinner. But that's okay, right? We'll let other people go eat the spaghetti. And then they're going to have to go run because they got all those carbs now. That's okay. What we're going to do, we're still going to help with the fundraiser, though. If you're looking for a way to invest, they're looking to raise $12,000. Through this fundraiser, $12,000 will feed 800 people breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two weeks. That's their goal. This fundraiser will feed 800 people three meals a day for two weeks. And maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, mm, yeah, I don't have any money. Silver or gold, have I none? You know, so, okay, you're not out. Like, you don't get... And out for that and say, I don't have to do anything. We all have time, talent, or treasure. Time, talent, or treasure. That's how you can invest. So maybe you need to call them up and volunteer to help. Maybe you need to help spread the word of what this ministry is doing. But I encourage you to continue to look for the voiceless in the community. And to say, how can I be an advocate? We see that example through Paul with Philemon. But here, I think, is the real reason why this, this whole concept of speaking for the voiceless, why it means so much to me. It's really what Jesus has done for me, right? I mean, it's what Jesus did for you, too. Because you and I, were kind of an ugly sight, bruised, beaten, naked, humiliated. We don't have anything to take to God. In fact, what we take is we take sin. There's, there's right and there's wrong in life. And every single one of us in this room, we have something in common. We've choose the wrong in life before, haven't we? We've said, I pick me. I pick myself. I pick selfishness. I pick what I want, God, above what you want. And what that does, we've been talking about all morning, it causes a divide in the relationship. And then we start pelting these bricks at God and building this barrier between us and him. And somewhere along the way, you realize that that barrier is there, that that void is there. And when you realize the void is there, what do you do? You say, well, I'm, I'm going to try to straighten it up. I'm going to, I'm going to act right. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to get some money to Samaritan House. I'm going, and we start trying to be good, thinking that that's going to shrink that void. And it never does, does it? You always feel like I can't quite get there. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to fill that void. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He was crucified to pay for the sins of the entire world. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Really, you know what Jesus did? Jesus did the same thing that Paul did to Philemon. Jesus, Jesus looks at God and says, someone's got to pay. I'll pay. Anything that's owed, I'll pay. And maybe, maybe you've never paused and connected all those dots before. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. 
that you'll be rescued, that that void is going to be filled, that you will have a oneness with God, that you'll be a son or daughter of the Most High. And maybe you've tried everything else, but you've never done that. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never reconciled that relationship with God. I want to pray for you in just a second, but I also want to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, you would be blown away. I've heard story after story from before the first service until now. Stories about, let me tell you about my brother and the brokenness that exists there and what he's doing to my dad. Let me tell you about my relationship with my dad. Let me tell you about my relationship that's been restored to the glory of God with my mom. Let me tell you about how he's working on this relationship with my friend. Let me, I mean, it's just been nonstop. I just want to pray for you because I have a feeling that for so many of you, this is one of those series that's hitting hard in your heart because you know where those tension points are. I just want to pray that you have the wisdom and discernment to know when to speak, when to stay silent, that you continue to lean hard on the Lord to show you those opportunities to bring a restoration that only comes from the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do thank you for today. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who right now they see those barriers that exist. I pay, pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, those walls come crashing down. That you continue to bring a restoration between parent and child, brother and sister, friends. And the Lord, you receive all the honor and all the glory for it. We're asking that you work in a way that only you can. And Lord, for those who need a restored relationship with you because they've never placed their faith, I pray that this is the moment that they say, God, I believe. I believe that you love me. And I know I messed up. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've sinned. I know that I'm the reason that there is a void there. You're the same. You don't change. But I know I've sinned. And I believe that Jesus came for that reason. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. And I believe he was crucified. Jesus, I know you rose again. And so today... I'm just telling you that I, I, I believe, and I want Jesus to be Lord, Master, Savior of my life. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. So Lord, I pray for both groups that are doing that hard work this morning, that you continue to bring beauty from the ashes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand as we continue to sing and worship this morning.